Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. This morning, as we go to uh, and talk about the Holy Spirit, I want you guys to turn to your Bibles to Titus. Uh, Yeah, I don't have an outline for you guys this morning, um, but we're going to spend a lot of time just looking at the primary text today in Titus. And so if you want to turn to Titus chapter 2, actually I need to turn there, it's not in my notes, Titus Titus chapter 2, not a book that we often read from, but incredibly, incredibly encouraging words from Paul to Titus um, in this letter. And so we're going to start in Titus (laughs) chapter 2, verse 11. And uh, read along with me. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and to be ready for every good work and to speak evil to no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of the loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God might be careful to, to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent and, profit, and profitable for the people. And so this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning is in this text. Um, and just this week, as I have studied and meditated on this text, I've really fallen in love with it. And maybe it's just because it's Titus. Maybe it's because it's new words to ideas that the Bible has reiterated and has talked about through other books of the Bible in Romans and Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians. Um, But to hear Paul's voice kind of in a new way, encouraging us to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And kind of through this Holy Spirit thing, we've we've done a more kind of topical approach. We haven't really looked at one massive chunk of Scripture, and we've kind of um, been very, very practical. But today it's going to be more kind of exhortive, kind of like go and do and let the text be the thing that preaches to your heart this morning. And so the first thing that I see in this text when we open it up is that the gospel is for all people. When we look at (coughs) verse 11, it says this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And so God's hope, God's grace, is that, that salvation would be for all people. And I know that we know this, and I know that we say this, and I know that we are like for that all the time. We're like, yes, of course. Jesus is for the salvation of all people. But I wonder, do we live lives that reflect that? Do we live lives that really go after this idea that (coughs) salvation is truly 
meant and available for all people. This past week in the student ministry with the students, we looked at the life of a woman called Mary Magdalene. Now, there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament, but there's this one Mary called Mary Magdalene, and she shows up in Luke chapter 10. And when she shows up, she has been following Jesus, and Jesus has saved her. And, <coughs> and what he saved her from are seven demons. She had had seven demons in her, and Jesus sets her free, and she now follows Jesus wherever he goes. Jesus meets her, and he heals her. And if you think about it, what type of person would Mary be? This Mary Magdalene be? If she had seven demons in her, what type of life choices would have Mary Magdalene probably had made? She probably wouldn't be somebody that you'd want to have as a friend, that you wouldn't want to have as acquaintance. She might be somebody that, as she walks by the street this way, you kind of like step over here and walk this way, and you kind of like look at Mary Magdalene and be like, oh, that woman, she's got demons in her. Just stay away from her over there. But Jesus, Jesus comes and he encounters Mary Magdalene, and he sets her free, and he saves her. And the question is, is why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus come and save Mary Magdalene? And I asked the students this question. I was like, why, why would Jesus do this? And we've got some really wise and bright students at, here at Damascus Road because they were like, well, it's because Jesus loves her. Because Jesus wants to forgive her. Jesus wants to forgive all people. They were kind of like, why wouldn't Jesus save her? This is, this is exactly down the alley of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do. And I think it's really easy for us to read this text and be like, yes, of course this is Jesus. Of course this is Jesus. But I think it's really kind of difficult sometimes for us to experience it in our own life. To be like, of course Jesus wants to forgive you. Of course Jesus wants to heal you. Of course Jesus wants to transform you and transform your life. I mean, if Jesus can do it for Mary Magdalene, the woman with seven demons, like certainly she can do it for you. He can do it for you. And so he does this to show his heart that he is here to save all people. He wants to make her well again. And what we also see is that in this text that our God is a God who's full of love and grace and kindness, more than we can imagine. If we look at verse 4 in chapter 3, it says, But when the goodness of the loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so when you think about it, was Mary Magdalene ever in a place to probably save herself? I mean, full of seven demons, full of habitual life choices, probably have been the victims to some horrific things, was she probably in a place to where she could have just like morally made a better choice? Where she could have just done better? Probably not. She was in a place of desperate need of somebody to come and save her. And Jesus comes and does that out of his goodness and of his love. And it's not because of any of the works that Mary Magdalene has done, but because of his own mercy <laughs> because he himself is merciful. And so that is our hope, that we too can experience Jesus like Mary Magdalene has, that he will come near to us out of his kindness, out of his gentleness, out of his mercy, out of his grace, and save us and transform us into new people. Because when Mary encounters Jesus, everything changes for her. 
She begins to follow him everywhere that he goes. She's on the road with him, and she's serving him. And then, fast forward to the crucifixion. Jesus is dying on the cross. The disciples have deserted him, except for John. Peter's denied him three times at this point. People are afraid. Guess who's at the cross? Mary Magdalene, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, and James, the brother of Jesus. That's who's there at the cross. Mary Magdalene follows Jesus, even when it's dangerous, even when it's uncomfortable. And then three days later, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, we have some disciples in Luke chapter 12 that are, have said, hey, we're going to hit the road. Our hope is lost. There's really no reason to stick around. Jesus is dead. I'm going to go back to the life that I was living before I met Christ because this whole movement seems to be over. And so they start heading out of town. But guess where Mary Magdalene's heading? She's heading to the tomb. She's heading to be near Jesus. And when she gets there, she meets Jesus. She meets the gardener. We come to find out is this image of Jesus Christ. And she gets to go, and she's given this commandment to go and tell the others. And so this Mary Magdalene that had seven demons in her who encountered Christ becomes one of the first people to go and share the gospel the good news that Jesus has been resurrected to others. I mean, this is incredible, incredible transformation that she experiences. It's a transformation that grows her into the likeness of God because everywhere she is, whether she's on the road with Jesus, whether she's at the cross with Jesus, whether she's going to the tomb with Jesus, her heart is to serve Jesus in all that she does. And in serving Jesus, she's given this command to go and spread the good news. Go and give this good news that I have come to life to some of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And so she's constantly being transformed into this image of who God is. And if this transformation is possible in Mary, how much more is it going to be possible for us and for you where his Holy Spirit is here? And where, how much possible is it for our neighborhood to be transformed? And how much more possible is it for our city to be transformed? Although Mary was a disciple of Jesus, we too get to be disciples of Jesus through his Spirit. And Paul tells us in Titus that he has washed us of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not stingy when he gives us the Holy Spirit. We don't just get like a little bit of Holy Spirit, but we get a pouring out of the Holy Spirit that is generous. And that is looking to transform us. This word regeneration is kind of the beginning of transformation. It's the, this moment <coughs> where, <coughs> where by God's goodness, he has saved us. And he is transforming us from a life of sin and death and towards a life of righteousness lived through Christ. Where we too, like Mary, can experience this transformation where we move closer and closer, growing closer and closer with Christ, being discipled by him, taught by him, and serving others as we go through him. And this transformation that we're talking about, growing in the image of God, this has kind of a fancy name in Christianity. It's called sanctification. It's this process of becoming holy. And the Holy Spirit does this. He, he initiates it at this point of regeneration, but he continues it on in our life as it has been poured out generously that we're going to continue in 
transformation. And so this sanctification, I want you guys to look at it, at this kind of closely. The sanctification kind of happens in two parts. This idea of So this, the sanctification, it happens in two steps. This process of being holy, this process of being declared holy. And uh, we see it in Hebrews 10. And so if you guys want to jump to Hebrews 10 really quick, Hebrews 10.10, 10, um, there's kind of this beautiful place where we see the both parts of sanctification working out. And what we find is that it's kind of a, a juxtaposition. Um, it's kind of um, where the two don't seem, that seems paradoxical, um, but somehow it works out to where we are sanctified first and completely through the blood of Christ. That when Jesus Christ died, resurrected, and we say, Jesus, come into our heart, come into our lives, we are declared holy in heaven. But yes, you and I, we don't experience that. We don't experience that holiness in this life. It's kind of an already but not yet. And so we live in this world where we are in the process of becoming more holy, of becoming more and more like Jesus. And this process is called sanctification. And what we find is that in Hebrews 10, both of these happen side by side, kind of simultaneously together. And so let's read together in Hebrews 10. I'm going to start in verse 8, but the real good part starts in verse 10. And so this is what it says. It says, When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. And so this is kind of Jesus. It's kind of a Jesus talking, or this idea of, of a reflection on the law and how the law was imperfect and how the sacrifices of the Old Testament law was unable to really satisfy the heart of, of uh, the sin issue that we had. And so it, he continues and he says, he does this away, this being Christ, with the first order to establish the second. And that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so this is part one. Jesus Christ gives himself up for us so that we can be holy. And so if anyone comes up to you and says, are you a holy person? Are you holy? Are you are you a transformed person? And the, the proper answer to that would be in Christ. Yes, if you were to look at my life and my decisions, I don't look holy. I make mistakes all the time. But when I am in Christ, and because of Christ, because of what he's done on the cross, yes, I am holy. And that's a bold statement to make, to say yes. That's a bold faith statement to make, say yes. My identity is found in the holiness of not of my actions, in my will, in my brokenness, but it's found in Jesus Christ, who has perfected it all, and who has finished it all on the cross. And so this is part one. We, have, we are holy. We are sanctified. But then there's part two, and it's right here alongside part one. The author of Hebrews continues. He says, And every priest that stands daily at a service, offering repeated sacrifices, the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for a all time a single sacrifice of sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all those who are being sanctified. And so here we have this idea that 
we are sanctified, but yet there are still those, and we are a part of that, who is also being sanctified. That it's kind of this idea that it's happened, but not yet. This, there's almost these two dimensions of reality that we are living in. And so we are here in this place of being sanctified, of being made more and more in the likeness of God and serving our God <laughs> with him and through him and through his spirit. And if we look at verse 15, it says, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And he adds, And I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And this is the thing that we need to go home with, is that God has made a covenant through Christ with his people where he will put his law, his heart, his actions, his spirit in us. And he will give us a new mind and he will transform us from the inside out. And in doing so, he will remember our sins and our lawlessness no more. And so when we talk about transformation, when we talk about conviction, and we talk about repentance, this is where we're, this is the trajectory that we're heading, is that we would grow in holiness. And so this is the God of, this is God's heart for us and for others, that we might know this, that we might know the freedom that we have in Christ, that we might know that our sins and our lawless deeds are remembered no more. In Titus, we see that God's grace uh, does something. At the very beginning, if you go back to verse 11, it says, for God's grace has appeared, and then there's a comma that says, bringing salvation for all people. And then if you were to like, take that out and to read the sentence without that clause, it would say, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, to appear, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so what you see is that the grace of God is acting. It's not just this thing of like, oh, it saves us. It's not, oh, we're just saved by grace. But if you see here in Paul, God's grace also does something in that it trains us. It renews us. It gives us new perspective. It changes our mind. And it causes us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I don't know about you, but on my own, I don't think I would be strong enough or I'd be creative enough to get to the place of saying, hey, I should probably renounce my worldly passions that are raging inside of me. That I should probably denounce ungodliness. But it's by the grace of God that His Spirit comes into our lives and he confronts us, and he confronts us in conviction, like we talked about two weeks ago. And he leads us by his grace in repentance so that we can come around to the, on the other side, renewed and transformed, renouncing ungodliness and our worldly passions, that we might be self-controlled and live godly lives in this present age. And so what we see here, what I see here in Titus, is the Holy Spirit is working in both conviction and repentance to bring about real transformation. And what I find is that in the history of the Bible, the reason why God comes and brings transformation in our lives and why he saves and transforms an entire people group is that it's not only just for their own personal benefit, which I think is what we think of first. Like a lot of times we're like, 
okay, I should be transformed because there's some personal benefit in it for me. Like I was once this thing, now I'm this thing, and this thing over here is better. And I think that sometimes we stop there. We stop short of the true vision of what God has intended when he saves a group of people. And when we look throughout the Bible, when we see Jesus and God saving an entire group of people, the vision is much bigger than the group of people that he's saving. And so when we look in Genesis and we see God speak to Abraham and he creates the covenant with Abraham, he says this, he says, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so he has a purpose of saving. He has a purpose for redeeming. He has a a purpose for transformation. He continues with Moses and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I've brought you out to myself. And that's that part where we say by God's grace and God's goodness and God's kindness, he saved us not by our own works, but by his work, by his grace, by his kindness. God was doing the saving work when we were unable to save ourselves even before Christ. And he's come and he's perfected it in Christ. And so again, back with Moses, he says, Now therefore, if indeed you obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all my peoples, for all earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, when you think about this role of priest, what does a priest tend to do? He tends to serve others. He tends to go and give blessings to others. And if you have an entire nation that is full of priests, they're not there to go around and bless one another, which that's part of it. But the greater vision and goal is for it to go and bless the people in the world around it. I believe that's why Jesus, God chose the Israelites is to, for them to be a nation of priests that would go out and bless the rest of the world. And I believe that we hear that kind of voice echoed in this, in this chapter in Titus, in verse 14, where it says, Jesus Christ gave himself up to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. And so you and I, we're that people. We're that people that God has redeemed for himself. He's that people that he wants to make a royal priesthood. He's that, we're that people that he wants to be zealous for good works. And that word zealous kind of hit me because I like to do good works. I like to do good things. But I wouldn't say that I'm like zealous about it. When you ask me like, Justin, what are you most excited about? I'm not like, oh, good works. I'm excited to bless others. I'm excited to make people's day. You know, that's normally not the number one answer that comes to my mouth. But here, the author of <laughs> Paul, the author of Titus, says he, he wants us to be zealous for good works. And so the question is, what, does, what do these works kind of look like? And he, if we look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, I think we have this image of what being transformed to serve others looks like. So let's look at that. Verse 1, it says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. That's kind of, he kind of re- <laughs> repeats himself there. Like submission to rulers and authority implies obedience. But he's like, just in case you didn't get it, have the spirit of obedience. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil to no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards others. And he says, for you were once, you were once foolish. You were once disobedient. You were once led astray. You were once slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
If we look at these two sections of verses together, what we find is that all of these actions are about relationship. They're about relationship with one another as a people. And how our identity affects those relationships. What we find is that when we love God, and when we love others, in this place of being submissive to rulers, of, of loving one another, of being ready for every good work, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, these are ways in which we love others, and we also love God in the process, in the ways that we love God and love others in that process. Because this idea, especially the beginning, this idea of being submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, like, that's the number one thing our flesh wants to rebel against, is obedience. It's to rebel against rulers and authorities. Because who's the greatest ruler and authority? It's God. He's given us the commandments, and our heart says, I really don't want to do that today, God. I really would rather rebel. I'd really rather not follow those laws. I'd really rather blow through the stop signs. But he says, have a spirit that is of obedience. And what we also find is that when we don't love God or when we don't love others, it's impossible to love God or to love others. So if we don't love God, it's really hard to love others. And if we don't love others, it is also really hard to love God. And we find that in that chapter, that verse 3, where we're foolish, we're disobedient. We spend our days in malice and envy and hating one another. And so the hope of God is that he would come and transform us and that he would make us his own people, that we would become sons and daughters. Verse 7 says that he called us to live. (coughs) Oh, it says that that we have become heirs for the hope of eternal life. That's verse 7. That we would become sons and daughters, that we'd be called for the sake of loving others. And so what I find is that the sanctification of the Holy Spirit is not only for us to grow in our relationship with God, but it's also for us to grow in relationship with one another. And what I find in Titus 3, 1 and 2 is this image of a person who's being transformed daily into the image of who Christ is. And this is the work of sanctification. This is the work of transformation, that we might become these things, that we might become gentle, that we might not become easily angered, that we might be someone that submits to authority, not seek division, that we would become a person of peace, and that peace would rule in our lives, and that we'd be somebody that brings peace to others. So I want you guys to pause for a moment, and I want you to think, a person of peace, what does that look like to you? Can you think of someone? Who's someone in your life that you would say, that person is a person of peace? And what makes them a person of peace? What qualities do they possess? The people in my life that are the greatest persons of peace are often those who display the loving kindness and gentleness and mercy that's found in Jesus, especially when Jesus goes to Mary and calls out seven demons from her. And so our hope is to grow as like Christ, to be a person of peace, to be a person of peace to one another in this room, but more importantly, to be a person of peace out in our neighborhoods, out in our city, out in our workplaces, 
I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit convicts me sometimes when I'm not that person of peace. Sometimes I'll speak malice against somebody. And a couple hours later, I'll be like, oh man, I probably shouldn't have said those words. They're not true. I believe them to be true when I said them. I mean, you always do when you speak malice, right? You're like, oh, that person, they're an idiot. You know? But that's not true. You know them to be deeper than that. You know they're not as foolish as you think they are. And so let's start being generous towards one another. And let us become people that are instruments of peace. Well, I think what's interesting about the life of the Christian is how quickly we can sometimes go from uh, feeling worthless um, and it, unable to being saved to being like kind of really proud and haughty in our own salvation through Christ. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we'll read the story of like Mary Magdalene. We'll say, oh man, Mary wants to, you know, Jesus wants to forgive you. And we have a hard time accepting that forgiveness and that love. And we say, oh, I don't know if I'm worthy of being saved. We'll do this whole like self-deprecation thing. But then on the other side is that we will start talking about transformation and transformation in our lives and where is God speaking to you and where is God leading you. And, you, and we get all excited. We're like, yes, transformation, yes, growth. How am I going to be a better person? How is God making me a better person? How is my life going to be better because of where God is leading me? And what ends up happening is that we end there. We end on ourselves. We don't ever ask the question why God might be making these transformations in our lives. And we end with this kind of false gospel that says, well, he, he does it because he wants your day to be better. He does it because he wants to have joy. And yes, those things are true, but I think it falls short. I think it falls short of the true purpose and vision of what God is trying to do in all of creation. I just find it fascinating that we can go from one extreme to the other of like, oh God, I have nothing to, oh God, make me better. Make me better. Oh, this is nice. Keep making me better. Keep leading me, keep guiding me. And we get selfish in that way. But then there's this kind of other side of the spiritual life and the other side of spiritual transformation, especially when we think that spiritual transformation is just for us, especially when we think that this whole sanctification is just for me, is that sometimes we can get lazy about it too. We can feel conviction come. We can hear God give us a clear plan on how to attack that sin or that unrighteousness in our life. And we can say, oh God, some other day. I'm doing pretty good today. Life's pretty good. I don't need to be transformed. I mean, you've, you've brought me a long ways. Let's just celebrate that. But if God is speaking, if God is leading, and he's trying to transform you, know that it's not just always for your joy and benefit. Know that the reason he might be transforming you and guiding you is so that you can go and bless others, that you can go and transform others, that you can transform this church community, that you can transform your neighborhood that this city of Verona could be transformed because of the transformation that God is doing inside of you. So don't sell God's transformation, God's heart short. Don't sell his vision short by just saying, you know what, this transformation, this conviction, this repentance piece, you know, it doesn't matter if I don't repent because it really only affects me. Like, don't let that lie sink in. Because our lives affect everyone around us. And I believe that the reason why Jesus has chosen a people it's so that we can go and bless and serve others. Because the heart of God is for that all people would be saved to go back to the beginning. And it's also his heart that all people would be transformed. 
And so the past few weeks, we've asked these questions. How is God speaking to you? Where is God speaking? Where do you hear God's clear voice speaking to you? How is he convicting you? How is he saving you and leading you through repentance? And so this week, I want to ask the question, is in him saving you and in him transforming you and in him speaking to you, why is he doing it? Why is he speaking to you specifically about this thing right now? Who is he looking to bless by your transformation? Who is he looking to see transformed because you've been transformed? What is God trying to do in you that is bigger than you? And so we're trying to take this step of transformation, this work of the Holy Spirit, one step further to say, the last two weeks we've talked about, yes, God is working in us. He is speaking to us specifically. He's addressing things that are very personal and intimate to us. And this week I want to ask why. Why is he doing that? And what do you think he hopes to do with it? Because sometimes I think we need a bigger vision than ourselves because God's vision for the transformation in our life is bigger than ourselves. I believe the reason why he wants to transform you is so he can transform your neighborhood, so he can transform Verona, so he can transform Madison, so he can transform Wisconsin. Like, God starts with us, and it only grows from there. And I don't know about you, but that's a vision that I get really excited about. Because if it just ends with me, I mean, that's cool, I guess. But it also feels really selfish. Um, it also feels very consumeristic. Um, It feels a little shallow, to be kind of honest. But when it's for others and it's for this greater purpose and this greater plan, there's something that's bigger than myself. And the fact that God saved me so that I could be a part of it, that's worth celebrating. That's worth celebrating that in God's goodness and on his grace and on his mercy, he's like, oh, you, you're broken? Cool, come along for the ride. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do to this world. And I'm going to use you along the way. Titus tells us this. He says, I want to insist on these things, that our hope is in Christ and that we are to devote ourselves to good work because these things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the second time Paul exhorts Timothy, not Timothy, Titus, to seek good works. And the first is this zealousness that I talked about. The second word is this, devote. These words have connotations of pursuit and conviction and direction. And he encourages us by saying that these things are trustworthy, to have confidence in your identity, to have confidence in Christ and what Christ has done so that you can pursue being an intentional blessing to others. Now what I found is that sometimes you can like accidentally be a blessing to others. You can be in that grocery store line or you can be driving down the road and you can hear the Holy Spirit say, give them $5, pay for their meal, help them on the side of the road. And those things are good, and it's great when we respond to them. But what I also find is that most of the time, and I believe the life that God wants us to truly live is an intentional life where we intentionally seek out blessing others, where it's not just a happenstance as we are going, oh, I guess I'll sprinkle some blessing over here. I got my spiritual blessing others out of the way today. Fix. But it's one where we can be intentional, where we can be growing forward. And I think the only way that we do this is if we're first confident in who Jesus Christ says that we are. If we're first confident 
in God's goodness, his gentleness, his mercy in our own lives. Because I believe that that's our only hope for us being good and kind and gentle and peaceful in anyone else's life. So I don't know about you, but I don't always wake, out, wake up in the morning on like the right side of the bed. I don't always wake up confident in who I am in Christ Jesus. To say, you know what, today I'm going to be a peaceful person, I'm going to be a kind person, I'm going to be an intentionally graceful person. Normally I wake up, put my clothes on, get out the door, and, you know, when someone cuts me off or around noon when the server gets my order wrong or whatever, I get frustrated, I get angry, and then I hear the Spirit of God say, hey, um, that, that wasn't how I would have loved you to respond there. You could have been kind and gentle. Do you remember who you are? Do you remember whose you are? I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm a person of peace because you have brought peace to my life. And so I want to encourage you guys to, as you wake up, to try and be intentional about the first thing that you think of is your identity of Christ and to, to be confident in that. Even when you feel nothing, even when you feel the desert, even if you feel like God is not there, I want you to stand up and just say, hey, God, I believe that what you say about me is true, that I am an adopted son and an heir, and that you have saved me by your grace and your mercy and your love and empower me to go and live a life that does those things intentionally for others today. Because that is why Christ is saving you. He is saving you so that you might be able to go and share his mercy and his grace and love for others. And so let us not spend another day doubting. Let us not spend another day in doubt, wondering if salvation has come near, wondering if, oh, am I good enough to Jesus really save me? Look at Mary Magdalene and know that if he can save her, he can save you and he wants to save you. So let's stop doubting that and let's start moving forward in confidence following Christ wherever he goes. Because that's what Mary Magdalene did, right? Mary Magdalene was with Jesus all the way, from the road to his death, to the tomb, to the resurrection. She was there following him. And we've been given the Holy Spirit to follow, and who's leading us step by step. And so let us become zealous for good works and following him. And we don't do these good works just so that we can become right or prove ourselves right and worthy for heaven. But we do these good works to prove heaven to the world out that is around us. That is why we do the good works. It has nothing to do with getting into heaven. If we believe that, we've missed the whole scope of the gospel. Instead, our good works are to prove heaven to earth. And so that's my encouragement to us as we go this morning is that as we are transformed, as we are in the middle of being transformed, and I believe the Holy Spirit is transforming us daily. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to us daily. I believe there are moments of conviction every day that we experience. The Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I want to bring grace. I want to bring peace. I want to bring rest where there is chaos. And he leads us through repentance for the purpose of us being able to be a people of peace, to go and share his loving kindness with others. And so let us not lose scope of the vision that God has for us by thinking that it ends with me. And let us go and serve others, proving heaven to earth. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together.
We thank you for your word in Titus. God, we thank you that you have transformed us, that you have sanctified us, first through your death, but that you continue it in your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that as we go this week that you would grow as a people of peace and that your spirit would lead us to intentionally serve and bless others for the purpose of transforming your church, for the purpose of transforming our neighborhood, and for the purpose of transforming our city. God, may you be glorified in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.